Lord, as we come to your word, once again, we thank you for it. And Lord, the passage that we find ourselves in today, who can preach it without hypocrisy? Lord, we are just beggars who need bread and who have sinned against you, who have sought bread other places. So Lord, I pray that you would purify my heart and the words of my mouth. Even though I'm a vile and wretched sinner, Lord, that the words of Christ himself would speak to us, would correct us, would convict us where we need to be convicted. And may Christ be glorified in that during this time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to the third chapter of John. We'll continue today with our study of the gospel according to John, looking at the third chapter, verses 18 to 21. Um, And as we continue in this study of the third chapter of John, which I understand has been a very long study, but there is so much richness in this chapter. I hope you've seen that. It has consisted, this chapter has consisted almost entirely of a conversation that took place between the Lord and a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And if there's anything that's really, really obvious, really clear about this conversation that they had. It's that things did not go the way that Nicodemus was hoping or expecting things to go. He had come to Jesus apparently seeking some kind of alliance, uh, seeking to kind of schmooze Jesus a little bit um, and to perhaps develop a, a partnership between Jesus and the Pharisees. But Jesus immediately turned that conversation right on its head, um, turning the conversation really into a challenge, a personal challenge to Nicodemus that grabbed and rocked the foundations of Nicodemus's heart and faith, which at this time was entirely settled on himself and in his empty religiosity. Nicodemus, let's remember, he, he represented the best that humanity has to offer. He was educated. He was extremely intelligent. He was powerful. He was very respected within the community. But Jesus wasted absolutely no time in just cutting to the chase, blasting away at the foundations of Nicodemus's empty religiosity, his shallow faith, his entire life. Like all the other Pharisees, Nicodemus had seen godliness as something of a checklist, which I think we're all inclined to do. That, you know, I, I do this, I do that, I do, I do this too, I do that, and I, I kind of usually do this. He saw his, his faith as something of a checklist, and he had checked off more boxes than the average person, but it was all an empty religiosity, just like every religion in the world other than Christianity. And when I say that it was empty, I mean that it was vain. If the goal is to produce righteousness, it wasn't even anywhere near accomplishing that goal. It didn't produce righteousness. It may have produced righteousness in man's eyes, but it didn't produce righteousness in God's eyes. And that is the radical and revolutionary claim that Jesus has used to to, completely attacked, to assail, to dismantle the confidence of Nicodemus. The gist of Jesus' argument that it has been that in order to see the kingdom of God, one must be born again. In order to enter into the kingdom of God, one must be born again. We cannot save ourselves regardless of how impressive or how highly esteemed or how powerful or how smart we may be. Jesus told him that what was needed was not this this checklist, not this outward external reforming of behavior. What is needed instead is an inward change, an inward rebirth, a new heart, and the person being filled with the Spirit of God. And Jesus knew, he knew that this is what Nicodemus needed to hear as he assailed the foundations 
of Nicodemus's confidence. He was attacking the convictions. He knew that he was attacking the convictions upon which Nicodemus had stood for as long as he could remember. But while he's blasting away at Nicodemus's artificial faith, he didn't leave Nicodemus without a string of hope to cling to. Jesus shared the gospel with Nicodemus and those who were listening, reminding them of the way that God had saved the Israelites when they were wandering around in the wilderness and they got bit by the fiery snakes and they were cured by looking at the bronze serpent in the wilderness. He was telling Nicodemus and and those present who were listening that the way to be saved was to cease and to repent of every effort to justify themselves and to simply look to him to Jesus in faith instead. Those who would believe him, those who would look to him in faith would not perish but have eternal life. It all sounds so simple, right? You're you're dead. the, the, The serpent of sin has bitten you. You must look to Christ and you'll live. You'll have eternal life. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to do that? It all sounds so easy, so simple. Who would rather perish than receive this precious gift of eternal life? But the terrible truth is that the answer is that billions and billions of people would rather perish than receive eternal life. And the passage that we come to today is going to address exactly why that is. Why people don't want eternal life. Why people don't want the cure for their ailment. So today we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 21. In the words of John Calvin, and this may surprise you if you know anything about John Calvin. In the words of John Calvin, the point of this passage is that, quote, it is evident that it is their own wickedness which hinders unbelievers from approaching to Christ. Let me say that again. It is evident that it is their own wickedness which hinders unbelievers from approaching to Christ. End quote. In other words, people are, by and large, by nature, their own worst enemies in the sense that they refuse to come to Christ because they love sin. And because they know that coming to Christ will necessarily involve turning from the sin that they love so much. So let's start by reviewing the thought that Jesus left off with. He said this in John three sixteen and 17. Famous passage. We've heard these words a million times. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So among many other things, this was Jesus attacking the idea, countering the idea that Jesus as the Messiah would only save ethnic Israel. That's what people like Nicodemus thought. Jesus did not come, however, to save ethnic Israel and to condemn the rest of the world, contrary to the way that many in that time believed. His mission, rather, wasn't to condemn at all, it was to save It was to save, it was to redeem a people who would, without redemption, perish in their sin. And let us understand from the outset that unless we, too, repent and believe with a biblical, saving faith, we, too, will all surely perish in our sin. And for all who perish, there is no blame to be laid at the feet of God. It is entirely man's own choosing and doing which condemns him. So Jesus is going to use two arguments primarily to support this truth. The first is found in verse 18. Let's look at verse 18 together. Jesus says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus has helped Nicodemus and us by default 
to see the clear connection between faith and salvation. But on the flip side of that coin, there is also a clear connection between unbelief and condemnation. Jesus says, he who believes in him, in other words, whoever believes in Christ, is not judged, is not condemned. And let us remember that we're not just talking about some kind of general, generic faith here. No, we're, we saw in our last lesson on, on the previous passage that the belief that God accepts, the, the faith that God is pleased by, biblical faith, consists of intellectual knowledge, that is, knowing what God says, knowing what God uh, values, for example, knowing what the Bible says is true. Uh, so it consists of, uh, of the intellectual knowledge, it consists of assent. Assent is accepting that as true. And finally, commitment. A willingness to act on to stand on, to cling to those truths. Those who believe in Jesus in this way are not condemned. They are not judged. They're not under the wrath of God. But, Jesus continues, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So again, just as there is a clear link, a clear connection between faith and salvation, there is also a clear connection between unbelief and condemnation. Jesus didn't come to put anyone into a position of being condemned. He didn't have to. Humanity was already there. Humanity was already condemned. Condemnation is kind of like growing moss in Seattle. You don't have to do anything to grow moss in Seattle. There's already more than you know what to do with. And that's what man's condemnation is like. There's nothing that man, that, that, that man can do, nothing that, that Jesus had to do to produce it. It was already there in abundance. Humanity didn't need a verdict to render them guilty and under judgment. What humanity needed, what the world needed, was a savior a redeemer. And this is a good thing for us to remember because that's why we preach Christ and Him crucified. But it's also why we must share that good news, why we must evangelize, sharing the good news of the gospel. It's not to judge unbelievers or to condemn unbelievers. They are already there. But it's to let them know that that's already where they're in, the position that they're in. And it's to invite them to the life. It's to invite them to the hope, the promise of redemption and glory in Christ Jesus. And this is what's so wrong with various groups, and you've probably seen them in the news. The news loves to highlight them. This is what's so wrong with these various groups who offer nothing but judgment and condemnation for the world to see, and and nothing else. They're like the prophet Jonah who who couldn't wait to see God's judgment unleashed on his enemies, the Ninevites, those dirty Gentiles, right? But there is no offer of, of redemption. There is no invitation to any kind of hope in the message that God hates people who sin in a particular way. Rather, Paul reminds us Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners. And he adds, among whom I am foremost of all. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. That's the kind of attitude that we need to have when we evangelize. Now, now as I was preparing to, to preach this message, message, let me say this. I've never had so much trouble preparing a message. This was the hardest sermon I've ever had to prepare in all my years of preaching Because how can anyone preach this passage without being a complete hypocrite? And and I realize that that I sin. I hope you guys realize I sin too. I'm just as much a sinner as anybody else. So how do you preach this without being a hypocrite? Well, you can't. Only the Lord Jesus could. I'll just say this. I'm just one beggar telling other beggars where to get a meal. 
where to get bread. But the message that we've been entrusted with, friends, is a message not of condemnation, but of reconciliation. Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. He says, He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So our message is not one of judgment or condemnation, although we, don't, we, do, we do want to make sure that people understand that we don't condone or endorse sin. And if they want to interpret our message as, uh, as judging their sin, that's their problem. No, our message is simply repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's a message of hope. It's a message of redemption. And so for all who perish as a result of judgment, of, of condemnation, God isn't the one who put them into a position of condemnation. Rather, it's man's own choosing and doing that condemns them. And as we've studied the third chapter of, of the gospel according to John, I understand one of the main themes of this chapter has been God's sovereignty in salvation. The idea of being born again or born from above carries at the heart of it the notion that salvation is not a work of the person, but it is a work of God entirely. And yet, while it is true, it is true that salvation is a work of the Lord, we have to understand simultaneously that condemnation is not a work of the Lord, that condemnation is what a person chooses when they reject Christ. What does God need to do to condemn someone? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just leave mankind to his own vices and desires and ambitions, and he's already condemned. Because the truth is, by nature, people hate the light. They don't dislike the light. They don't prefer the darkness. The truth is, by nature, people hate the light and love the darkness. And thus, they've chosen darkness over the light. And this is the second reason that unless a person repents and believes in Jesus, they are eternally condemned. So let's continue looking at verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Friends, people don't reject Jesus because they can't find a good enough reason to believe in him. People don't reject Jesus because there's a lack of evidence, or maybe they just haven't heard a good enough argument for them to believe in Jesus. No, people reject Jesus because they hate the light and they love the darkness. John's already introduced Jesus as the light. Back in the first chapter, he wrote of Jesus in verses 4 and 5, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He'd continue a few verses later, writing in verse 9, There was the true light, speaking of Jesus, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now, whenever we come across uh, the, the word light being used as a metaphor. We should understand that there are really two primary ways that the Bible uh, refers to something as, as light, metaphorically. The first uh, is to use light to refer to God's perfect righteousness, his utter holiness. John writes in his first epistle, God is light. Not just that God has light, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. So light here is righteousness. It's moral perfection. It's holiness. And conversely, darkness represents sin. The very opposite of righteousness. So that's the first way that the Bible uses light metaphorically. The second way is 
referring to spiritual illumination. That is the understanding that the man who has been regenerated, or woman, by the way, who has been regenerated by God receives upon being born again. The opposite, again, would be spiritual darkness or blindness, which represents being spiritually lost and unregenerate. So when Jesus says that people love darkness rather than light, he's saying that they love sin and that they love unrighteousness. And when he says they hate light, he's saying they hate moral perfection. They hate what is good. They hate God. Even when God demonstrated his great, great love for the world, By sending his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What did men do with that light? They rejected it. I mean, what compares to the kind of rejection that Jesus faced? What compares to the hatred that Jesus experienced throughout his earthly ministry? God demonstrated a love in sending Jesus that was greater and deeper and stronger than any love ever known to man. And in exchange... Men hated God. And not only did they hate God, but they hated Him more the more light they received. Think of it this way. When King Herod received words of Christ's birth, how did he respond? What did he do when he heard that this Messiah was being born in Bethlehem? Did he say, oh, I'm I'm a truth seeker. I need to go and worship this child too. Uh, did he declare the, the birth of this, of this king a national holiday and require everyone within his, within his kingdom to go and worship? No, he sent his soldiers to go and murder every baby boy born in Bethlehem, thinking that by doing so, he would surely eliminate and extinguish this light that had stepped down into the darkness of the world. What happened when Jesus performed miracles? It hardened people. It hardened people in their rejection of him. It hardened people in their hatred for him. Think of it this way. When when Jesus fed the 5,000 miraculously, they they absolutely loved him. They, They wanted to follow him around. But then when he turned around and preached the gospel to them, what did they do? Ah, I'll go find a meal someplace else. They left him. They abandoned him. They they all walked away. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now you would think when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that anyone with half a brain would say, oh, if he can do this, then he is obviously who he claims to be. He is obviously God in the flesh because only God can do this. So we should all bow down and humbly worship this, this man, this Jesus, who resurrected Lazarus from the dead. But what did they do? Instead, when they heard about it, the Sanhedrin decided to have him murdered. The more they were exposed to the light, the more they hated him. If you want to know how receptive the world is to the love of God, look at what they did to our Lord. Look at what they did to Jesus. Look at how they treated him, especially when he confronted them with their need to be reconciled to God. The truth that breaks the hearts of God's people and turns them to God is the same truth that will stiffen necks of of the unregenerate and turn them even further away from God. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay, right? We see that throughout Jesus' ministry. And it would be completely inaccurate for us to suppose that things are any different today than they were 2,000 years ago. That the way people responded to him then, well, we've had 2,000 years to, to progress and, and to become better and more knowledgeable and to, to understand the human condition and to see our need for Jesus. No. Things aren't any different today than they were when Jesus walked the earth. And isn't it interesting, by the way, to see that the verb that's used to describe mankind's feelings toward God is the same word that Jesus used to describe God's feelings about the world. God so loved the world, agape is the word. God so loved the world, men loved, agape, the darkness. 
Now, what does a person do when they're confronted with a truth like that? What does a person do when they're confronted with the reality that they are a sinner? I mean, don't we see what they do all around us? And haven't we done those things themselves? One of the things that people do is they'll just come up with an excuse. They'll, they'll, they'll uh, justify it saying it's something that they had to do. The thing is, people have to do something to ease the guilt that they're carrying around, to ease their conscience. And they go to great lengths to do so. So one of the things that people do is they simply rationalize it. They say, I have to do it. I was created this way. I didn't have a choice. God made me this way, so he must want me to do this. Have we ever heard anybody use that argument? All the time, right? No, the reason for sin is not because well, God made me this way, and so therefore I must be designed to do this. No, the reason for sin is love of darkness and hating the light. And loving the darkness is never, never necessary. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out in his exposition of this passage that another thing people do to ease the guilt that they feel before God is to point back in time or to look back in time to, to a point when they made a decision for Christ. He says this, he says, quote, they are resting on a decision that they once made, perhaps early in their lives, and that they feel has made them Christians, and therefore they always fall back on that, end quote. And he proceeds to illustrate this by telling the story of a man who came to him after service one time to confess a sin that he was engaging actively in. And Martin Lloyd-Jones noted that it didn't sound like he was confessing as much as he was bragging about how much he enjoyed this sin, knowing that, well, I made a decision for Jesus and therefore I'm covered by grace. Lloyd-Jones then concludes, writing that, quote, a decision is of no value unless it leads to a life of holiness, end quote. Remember, Jesus doesn't accept just any faith. We saw him not accept the faith of the people at the end of chapter 2. The belief of the people at the Passover, it was rejected. It was shallow. It was superficial. It was based only on what they see. It wasn't based on a commitment of any sort. Another way that people will ignore their guilt before God is to stop exposing themselves to the truth of God's word. Maybe they'll come to church for a little while, but when it stops serving the needs of their flesh, they stop coming. It makes people uncomfortable to be exposed to the truth. And so they'll stop going to church altogether, or they'll find a church that entertains them instead of edifying them. See, when somebody doesn't come to church for months and months and months at a time, I, I never have to wonder why that is. And neither do you. It's not because uh, I'm smarter than anybody else. I have greater insight than anybody else. No, Jesus tells us right here why people don't come to the light. It's not something that we have to guess at. It's because people love sin and hate the light. The person who truly loves the light doesn't stay away from the truth, from the light, for a prolonged period of time. The person who truly loves the light doesn't stay away from church for months at a time. That would be like not breathing for them or not sleeping. It's something that they need. It's something that they love. Because God has designed the church to be the primary place where light is shining and received. Those types of people who stay away from church for, for months and months at a time, they'll often be the same types of people who will tw uh, twist Scripture any place the truth confronts them. So rather than yielding to Scripture's clear instructions, they'll make Scripture subservient to the needs or the wants or the desires of their own flesh. And so therefore, a salesman, for, just for example, a salesman will apply uh, the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He'll apply that not to overcoming circumstances which might otherwise hinder or destroy his walk with Christ. No, he'll turn around and use that for, well, when people say no, I can keep going. I, I, can, I can keep making sales through Christ who strengthens me. Or you'll see a basketball player uh, apply that verse to his ability to shoot a basketball. Or you'll see a mixed martial artist apply it to his ability to punch people in the face. 
These are real examples that you can see in the world around us. Another common way that people will ease the burden of guilt that they feel before the Lord is to convince themselves that their good deeds counter their bad deeds, that, that it all balances out, and maybe their, their good deeds are a, a little bit more. And so what an unregenerate person will do is they will sin and sin and sin licentiously, and then they'll turn around and they'll do something that they think is good. Maybe they'll make a larger-than-usual contribution to a charitable organization. How much? However much it takes to silence their conscience. Although, as the conscience becomes more and more seared, it becomes easier and easier to find that silence of the conscience. I mean, there are so many ways that people deal with the guilt that they feel before God. The answer is to go to Christ. But the unregenerate man will not. He'll deal with his guilt some other way. There are ways that I can't even imagine. And I, I just share these because I, I know these. I know these because I've done all these things myself. We all have in one way or another, haven't we? However a person chooses to ease their sense of guilt before God, it is a smokescreen whichever method it is. It's nothing. It's a smokescreen. It is the worst example of the way that sin causes people to lie and to deceive, to even lie and deceive themselves. But this is at the heart of the gospel message, friends. All have sinned. All have sinned. And we've all done so not only by nature, but by choice. We've done so not out of innocence or out of ignorance, but because people love darkness. The question that every man, every woman, every child must answer is, however much light you've been given, however much spiritual truth you've been given, what have you done with it? Have you run from it? Or have you run to it? People refuse to come to Christ because they love sin. And they know that coming to Christ will necessarily involve turning from the sin that they so love. And if we understand this, then we have to understand why our evangelism doesn't produce as much fruit as we've as we would like. Now, I've mentioned that there was a time several years ago, I've mentioned this in several sermons, so you guys have probably heard the story. There was a time several years ago when I thought that all I had to do was to con uh, present a compelling or convincing argument to somebody who wasn't a Christian, and of course they would become Christians, but they usually don't. Why not? Because it's not an issue of intellect. It's a heart problem. It's, it's a problem with what they love. It's a problem with what they aspire to, what they desire, not with what is in their minds. They know that God exists. And if they've heard the gospel, they know that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. They know that his word speaks truth. But they love sin, and they don't want to turn from sin. What Christians have done far too often in light of this reality is to devise unbiblical methods of evangelism and doing church. Uh, you know, so they'll come up with an evangelistic methodology or, or a philosophy of ministry that's really designed at the, at the base of it, at the foundation of it, it's designed to appeal to unregenerate man's flesh nature. And to feed that. And what happens then is that people gain an assurance of their good standing before God, but they've never been challenged when it comes to their love for sin. Perhaps the most unloving thing the church has ever done is to conduct church services that just make people feel good, but don't invite them to turn from the sin that they love and which prevents them 
from experiencing the fullness of life and grace that's found in Christ Jesus alone. And the result is that lost people remain completely lost and they feel really good about it, even while they attend church regularly. And the tragic truth is that honestly, they wouldn't want it any other way. You see, unregenerate man's condemnation is entirely self-inflicted, self-imposed. And it demonstrates the complete foolishness, the short-sightedness, the spiritual blindness of those who reject Christ. They hate God because they love sin. Calvin puts it this way. He says, quote, The light is hateful to them, for no other reason than because they are wicked and desire to conceal their sins as far as lies in their power. Hence it follows that by rejecting the remedy, they may be said purposely to cherish the ground of their condemnation. End quote. To cherish the ground of their condemnation. To love it. To prefer condemnation to salvation. That is the insanity of unbelief and the condemnation that is caused entirely by self-imposed unbelief. Sin prevents people from coming to faith in Christ because biblical faith, saving faith in Christ, cannot coexist with a love and a desire for sin. You cannot serve two masters. And make no mistake about it, Sin is a master that people serve. And again, if they're unregenerate, they wouldn't have it any other way. Now that doesn't mean that we won't sin when we come to Christ. What it means is that when we do come to Christ, we learn to hate sin. And that when we do sin, we confess it, we repent of it. We learn to hate it more and more and to love the righteousness of God. And to pursue that. So I ask you today, do you have a pet sin that keeps you from growing in your walk with Christ and in your love for him? Do you have some kind of belief? Have you believed the the lies of a particular sin or two that have convinced you that you'll find more joy in that sin than you will in exposing that sin to the light and being done with that sin once and for all? Let us resolve to continue to wage war against sin. And we do that by exposing our hearts in yielding submission to light, to the Word of God. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but we've been confronted with a really, really hard truth. You didn't come to the light because of anything within you. We don't have a natural disposition to be seekers of truth on spiritual matters. Jesus says that we have a natural disposition to avoid spiritual truth, to hate spiritual truth, to hide ourselves from spiritual truth at all costs. Jesus didn't say that humanity just dislikes the light, or or doesn't prefer the light, he says that man hates the light. Now think about this for a moment. If what Jesus has said here is true, and it is, that by nature men loved the darkness rather than the light, if that's true, speaking of humanity as a whole by nature, if that statement is true, then how did any of us come into the light? The psalmist gives us an answer. In Psalm 18, verse 28, the psalmist writes, The Lord my God illumines my darkness. The Lord my God illumines my darkness. What a marvelous truth. What a marvelous thing to behold. That is the glory of the gospel, friends. That is the glory of the gospel message. The glory of the gospel is that despite self-imposed condemnation despite man's rejection and hatred of the light people do come to Christ in faith 
and repentance, and it is entirely a work of God. Condemnation isn't a work of God. It's self-imposed. But if people had to come to the light on their own, and that they do, then what Jesus is saying here isn't true. But what he said here is true. It is light. And it indicates that our turning to the light is unnatural. Indeed, it is supernatural. It's a work of God that anybody comes to the light and loves the light. That is not man's natural disposition. It's something that only God can do. Jesus continues in verse 21. He says, But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is where we see the difference between Christianity and every other world religion. This is where we see the difference between Christians and unbelievers. Christians are people who come to the light. They reach for the light. They strive to walk in the light. Indeed, who love the light and want more and more of it shining into the depths of our hearts. That's their natural disposition. That's the Christian's natural disposition. And that's what gives them a deep sense of of joy and satisfaction and happiness and contentment is coming to the light, being exposed to the light. It feels so good to be convicted, doesn't it? I I don't know about you guys, but I, I love it when I hear a sermon that just convicts me and leaves me in tears. Why? That's not natural. That's the work of God in a man, causing him to love what his flesh hates. It's as if to say, I'll do anything. I'll expose the the deepest parts of my heart to your truth, Lord. There there is no cost that's too great. And that's a peace and a joy and a, a satisfaction that natural man wants. But it's as if he says, I want it, but not at that cost. We've had a lot to say in this third chapter about the nature of saving faith. And this verse teaches us two very important things about the nature of saving faith. The first is that legitimate saving faith produces change in the life of the believer. Legitimate faith produces change in the life of the believer. Jesus says that he who practices the truth comes to the light. This is true of every Christian in every place and in every time. But conversely, it cannot be said of any unbeliever in any place or any time. See, when a person truly believes in Jesus, they've been exposed to the light. They come to the light. They they want to expose themselves to it. They live in it. They delight in it. And the Bible says this, doesn't it? The Bible actually refers to itself as light. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And again in verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. What does that tell us? It tells us that the Christian life is characterized by the pursuit of light. Of deeper spiritual truth and submission to that truth which is found in Scripture. The unbeliever avoids the light at all costs, and conversely for the Christian, there is no cost that is too great. The Christian feels the desire and the urgency to yield his life or her life and desires and ambitions more and more and more to the truths that are found in the riches of God's Word. That's the kind of changed life we're talking about. It's not just behavior modification. It's not just readjustment of the unregenerate person's desires of their flesh. No, his natural desires would lead him away from the type of change that I'm talking about. No, the only explanation for this change of desires is the work of God. It's not just changing what's outward. It's heart transformation. 
It's, it's a desire. It's a willful longing for things that the natural man does not desire. A natural person's desire, for example, is to feed their pride constantly and protect their pride whenever their ego is attacked or assailed. But the Christian comes to hate their pride. They come to despise their pride. Uh, Instead of seeking freedom to sin, they will seek freedom away from sin, freedom from sin, so that they don't have to do it because they hate it. They don't want freedom to sin, they want freedom from it. And thus the Christian life is one that is increasingly marked by humble obedience to what the Word of God says. All this points to what Paul says in Philippians 2.13. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This work of God inevitably produces a changed life. A transformed heart must produce a transformed life. The second thing that characterizes the life of the believer, look at what Jesus says here in verse 21. He says the reason that the Christian comes to the light is so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That is to say, the Christian is characterized not only by something outward, but by something inward. His actions aren't only changed, his entire motivation is changed. He's not coming to the light for his own glory, but for the glory of God. This is what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. Every other religion is, in the end, faith. But faith in what? Faith in man. Faith in one's ability to do this and to do that. Christianity is entirely different. It doesn't say do this and do that. It says it's done. Look back. Look at Jesus, who bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners. It's done. It is finished. Man is by nature very, very religious, but man's natural religion is always aimed at glorifying the self. And Nicodemus exemplified that desire to glory in oneself. But Christianity is about denying oneself. It's about glorifying God through self-denial. If it's true that a love for sin will keep people from God, and it is, then it's also true that a love for God will increasingly keep us from sin. It'll prevent us from loving it. It'll prevent us from accepting it or being comfortable with it. If you've come to the point where you find that you hate darkness and you love the light, it can only mean that God has done and indeed is doing a work in you. Take no credit for that yourself. We have nothing to boast of, but give God all the glory for the mercy that he has given you in Christ by living your life in humble submission to his word, to the light. Let's understand that this is our message, friends. Come to the light of Christ and be saved. Turn from sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's do more than just understand it. Let's do more than just share it. Let's do more than just proclaim it. Let's resolve, once again, by the grace of God working within us, to live it. To continually apply it to our own lives. To embrace it. And to live it out. All for the glory, not of ourselves, but of Christ who redeemed us. Our most gracious Father, we thank you for the light that we find in your word. We thank you for the way that the light of your word drives out darkness. We thank you for the way that your word confronts us, confronts our sin, for the way that it convicts us, for the way that it changes us, for the way that it drives out the desires of the flesh. Father, we confess in the silence of our hearts that we are sinners. 
that we are just beggars, wretched beggars, who would tell other beggars where to find food. Give us courage, Lord, to share this message of redemption and hope in Christ Jesus. Teach us, Lord, to live lives that are glorifying to you because sin is being driven out as you work more and more in us. Thank you for your ongoing work in us. Thank you for not just leaving us in our sin, but for sending Jesus to die for us, to take the wrath that we deserved for our sin and imputing his own righteousness, his own moral perfection to all who will turn from sin and believe in him. And when we are weak in our faith, Lord, increase our faith, grow our faith, and strengthen our convictions that we may delight in your word and in the light that your word shines into our lives through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.